Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard. No matter where in the world you live, you should know that something has changed in international law, something big. For the first time since World War II, the international legal community can find individuals, like heads of state and military officials, responsible for crimes of aggression. What does that mean, and why is this such a big deal? Noah Weisbord is a professor at Queen's Law and the creator and instructor of the International Law Module in Law 201-701, Introduction to Canadian Law. He knows a bit about the crime of aggression. In fact, he's written a whole book about it, which is topping Amazon sales charts and receiving accolades across the globe. We're having our own book launch event for the crime of aggression on November 11th, following events in Montreal, New York, and elsewhere. Noah sat down with me to talk about the crime of aggression, what it means, and how the term is being updated for a modern world where drones and cyber attacks are creating new ways of waging war. This podcast is not legal advice and is being presented for informational purposes only. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. How has the book done since its launch? Uh, I've been really kind of surprised and delighted. So the, the book was uh, Amazon US um, uh, number one new release. Uh, Philip Sands, who's one of my favorite authors, uh, he wrote a book called East West Street on the origins of genocide and crimes against humanity. There was a book bestseller everywhere, called it a book of singular importance, intelligence and insight on a subject of enduring significance. I'm feeling good about um, uh, uh, how it's doing. I hope that people pay attention. I think that this is one of the most important issues of our times, the shift towards authoritarian rule mixed with uh, um, uh, lowered barriers on aggression against other states. I'm, I'm very concerned about this, the transformation of warfare and the move towards authoritarianism. And this book deals with those two themes. And I think I think a lot of people can be nervous about reading writing by academics because they think it's going to be very academic writing. But there's been some reviews that have said you've kind of hopped the barrier, right? That the book is, it's accessible. Yeah, it's supposed to be kind of a series of stories, a history. It's got characters. Um, it's got villains. It's got heroes. Uh, so I, I think it's accessible uh, uh to, to someone who's interested in these issues, and hopefully uh, a broader audience will become uh, interested in it as well. It's a it's a story, really. It's more of a story than a theory, and the concept uh, uh, is an old one. Um, it tracks a hundred years of diplomatic negotiations over this holy grail of international law. Holy grail of international law is to hold an individual leader, like a president or a prince responsible for waging an illegal war. So this started uh, as a discussion, um, you know, around World War One. Um, there was an attempt to kind of create a prohibition uh, where the Kaiser, uh, who was supposedly responsible for World War One, according to a lot of people, would be held accountable for the war itself, would be prosecuted uh, by an international tribunal held accountable. Um, then in World War II afterwards, there was the trial of the Nazis for the invasions of Poland, Czechoslovakia, and a number of other countries. So individual Nazis, Hermann Goering, 
and others were held accountable for those invasions. Um, uh, um, and then basically this idea went into um, uh, deep sleep throughout the Cold War uh, because the Americans and the Soviets couldn't agree on a definition. But this is the holy grail of international law because it would mean that uh, the prohibition on the use of force would be individualized and these leaders could be captured and tried. Right. And so what what you're saying is for a long time, basically, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were such power players that if they couldn't agree on this, then it couldn't happen. Absolutely, because it needed to be established by a treaty that all of the states, or at least a great many states, would agree to. And very difficult to come up with a definition of an illegal war. Um, which individuals are going to be held accountable? Is it just going to be the president or is it going to be the minister of defense, the generals? How far down does it go? Uh, but I need to add something is that until um, uh, very recently, until December 2017, when the new law was actually activated over uh, you know this 100-year attempt to define it, gets activated in 2017, what existed at the time when it came to prohibiting force was that um, uh, there was no prohibition on force uh, prior to World War I. There was no blanket prohibition. States, presidents, princes could wage war as they pleased. They were free to do as they pleased when it came to... It was like a form of law enforcement. If a, another state wronged you, you could go and invade them and force them to, uh, to, to make it right. Um, World War I happened then. The whole, you know, empires crumbled. States went to war. Uh, you know, um, tens of millions of people were killed in this war. And then states tried to build an international system, collective security. But it wasn't state, it wasn't individuals that were regulated under the system. It was states. And there was no prohibition on war. They could wage war as they pleased, so long as they first tried through the League of Nations to resolve their dispute peacefully. So there were procedural steps to try to resolve the dispute. And if those didn't work, then the state could wage war against the other state. That system collapsed in the 1930s with Hitler. And uh, um, with the end of World War II, two important things happened. First, the creation of the United Nations. It was like the League, but strengthened, but more, um, uh, uh, more robust enforcement system of the Security Council, the great powers in charge of enforcing international law. In parallel with that, the Nuremberg trial, where the Nazis were tried for crimes against peace, which is now called the crime of aggression. That's the subject of my book. Uh, crimes against humanity, which are widespread attacks on the civilian population. Uh, genocide was a category of crimes against humanity at the time. And war crimes, violations of the laws and customs of war, shooting prisoners of war, using prohibited weapons like poisonous gas, things like that. So at Nuremberg, these individuals were held accountable but the prohibition on force it was created by the United Nations only prohibited states from invading other states. So it's collective responsibility. Right. My regret and the regret of Benjamin Ferenz, the, the Nuremberg prosecutor who kind of championed this idea, he was one of the key players in the drafting of this new crime. Um, uh, what The biggest regret was that the UN Charter and the Nuremberg idea that individual leaders would be held accountable weren't combined at the time. That would have made it so that it would be easier to enforce international law because it would be just against an individual, not against an entire state, a collective. 
But why is it so? I mean, why is it so important that individuals be held responsible? Because I mean, it, it takes a village, right? Like it takes a whole state to go to war. There's a lot of people there. So why is it so important that an individual be singled out as responsible? Okay, so this is the central question. Basically, at the root of this whole discussion is whether wars are caused by abstract entity, abstract forces. You know, a state competition, um, economic inequalities. Uh, or whether they're caused by individuals that decide to bring their nation to war. And I think that this debate was has been playing out for the last hundred years, underlying the discussions over the crime of aggression. And I think we're starting to realize now, with since 2016, since the uh, we've realized how much power the leaders of states, for example, the American leader uh, and leaders in, in, in Europe and um, autocratic leaders in Turkey, Venezuela, we're starting to really realize that the social and historical forces can be in place for war. The competition can be in place, but what's required is pyromaniacs to light the world ablaze. Right. So, I mean, and it, this has been raised before on sort of domestic grounds. I remember when Obama assumed the presidency and people said, well, you should prosecute George W. Bush for war crimes. And he was like, ah, what's done is done. Um, so is there is is there a reasonable hope that this will happen or is there just going to be a general political leavening of things where people will be like, well, technically we could do this, but why stir the pot? We know that autocratic-leaning leaders are scared. We know this because they're exerting a great deal of effort attacking all the international justice institutions and all of the post-World War II uh, checks on their uh, power now. Uh, I've in my entire life, I've never seen such an onslaught on the rule of international law as I have since 2016. And I'd say the highest point, the most aggressive point of this onslaught was John Bolton being appointed national security advisor to Donald Trump. This is a man who said that the best thing that could happen to international law is that the top, I forget, maybe the te top 10 stories of the United Nations be wiped off the face of the planet. Um, he said that the International Criminal Court is dead to us in his first uh, speech uh, after being appointed by Trump. Um, uh, basically, rather than focusing on um, preventing autocratic leaders from torturing and targeting their populations, from waging uh, terrible wars, from stealing the money of their their people, he focused on attacking the institutions that would prevent these kinds of abuses. And we knew then and there uh, uh, that something was happening, that there was a certain defensiveness that came of this. And that means that now is not the time to let off on the institutions. Now is not the time to let off on the United Nations, the International Criminal Court, uh, and any other emerging institutions to hold leaders accountable. you got to put on the gas now. Right. So this is your your read of this is this this aggression towards the institutions is people being nervous about the institutions. I think that John Bolton potentially could be the first uh, defendant at the International Criminal Court for the crime of aggression. Potentially, the crime of aggression is the planning, preparation, initiation, or execution of a manifest violation of the United Nations Charter, which is a big mouthful. But basically, there's a list of acts that amount to acts of aggression. Bombardment, blockade, attacking the armed forces of another state, um, sending armed bands to attack another state. Uh, these are lists that came out of negotiations since, you know, 1933, the, this, this list was in place. Um, uh, and so it's 
one thing that this law does is it is the clearest, most specific prohibition on illegal war that's ever been. And it's been accepted by consensus by 123 states in the world uh, after a long series of negotiations. Second thing that it does is it doesn't just give the International Criminal Court another crime that it may or may not be capable of prosecuting, depending on how much leverage it has politically at the time. It hands this crime to 123 states parties, regional courts that can try leaders for aggression, um, the domestic courts of Russia, Germany, um, approximately 40 states have in their domestic criminal codes the crime of aggression, right next to manslaughter, murder, theft. It creates an international justice ecosystem that, with the capacity to um, uh, result in accountability for these aggressors. So, okay, is it going to work? Not sure. My prediction is that the first aggression cases will be self-referrals, like the first genocide and crimes against humanity cases. So a successor regime, just imagine the United States, okay, right. uh, would hand over, imagine um, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris president coming in uh, and deciding that accountability was important, the rule of law has been eroded under the last president, and we're going to um, uh, uh, refer our own situation to the International Criminal Court for prosecution, meaning that John Bolton or some other Trump administration officials implicated in some sort of illegal wars uh, uh, would be tried in The Hague with the consent of the United States. So this is a national self-referral. Does the nation refer itself or does the nation put forth the individual? Like, Would, would the United States say... Donald Trump, this guy, this is the guy you gotta you gotta prosecute. This guy, we're the United States, but we still think he's got to be prosecuted. Or would they say we think the United States is engaged in crimes of aggression? We need you to find the individuals responsible. Uh, the it could be there's a number of ways. Uh, the United States could say nothing about aggression. They could just say we refer our situation, you know, in relation to Afghanistan or in relation to Syria to the International Criminal Court right. and leave it to the court to find crimes within the jurisdiction, its jurisdiction. The United States might or might not hand over its own people. It could hand over John Bolton or John Bolton could travel to an ICC state party, 123 of them, required to arrest him under the agreement. So he flies to Canada. Canada decides John Bolton, private citizen, should be uh, surrender to the International Criminal Court for right. prosecution. So uh, there's a, a kind of an enforcement system that's uh, complex and disaggregated, and it doesn't just rely on the ICC who, that has no army of its own to arrest. Uh, every state that's a member of the ICC should participate, and civil society uh, can help as well. Um, there's even been private military contractors, mercenaries, that have arrested in the past, and as long as those arrests don't um, uh, uh, result in egregious uh, circumstances like torture, uh, then you can still try uh, people that have been arrested by mercenaries in international courts. Hey, it's Matt. A quick note that at the time this airs, you've got just over a month until November 30th, 2019 to enroll in our Certificate in Law program for a January 2020 start. 
You can learn more about international law from Noah Wiseboard and our Introduction to Canadian Law course, and even take a really deep dive with Law 207707, International Law, created by Queen's Law PhD, Chris Waters. If you start in January and take just one online course a semester, you could earn your Certificate in Law from Queen's Law, one of the best recognized law schools in Canada, by the summer of 2021. In a complicated world, it's important to know what's happening behind the headlines. And in a competitive world, showing you understand the law can help you stand out. You can find out more about the program at takelaw.ca or drop us a line at lawcertificate at queensu.ca. Back to Noah. You said way back when. Uh, this was basically stalled for decades because the USA and the USSR couldn't agree on things. And they could hold up the process because they were so powerful. Uh, since the dissolution of the USSR, the US is the world power. If they're so upset about it, why can't they just stop it? You mean stop the court from being able to function? Well, stop stop, stop the prosecution of the crime of aggression. Yeah, if, they, if right. they could stop it from sort of being formalized in the first place, can't they take it apart now? Well, now it's become a swarm. So the the law itself has become so disaggregated that even if the United States blew up the International Criminal Court, uh, um, then the crime still exists in the legal system of 123 states and some um, regional organizations, the African uh, Court of Justice and Human Rights. Um, and uh, um, uh, it's basically become um, uh, law that permeates all these different level institutional levels. Right. So, okay, maybe the swarm is not going to be able to take down uh, President Donald Trump while he's in power, for example. Uh, um, uh, but certainly when the leader gets politically marginalized, geographically isolated, that's when the leader, it has been shown in past arrests, becomes vulnerable to uh, arrest and prosecution. Right. So what constitutes a crime of aggression today, 2019, maybe 2020 soon? Um, what What is a crime of aggression? Well, that's exactly now um, the scope of which uh, an advisory group uh, established by the Liechtenstein Mission to the United Nations is trying to figure out. So we have the traditional list of acts that are defined in the crime. Article 8 biz of the International Criminal Court uh, Treaty sets out those acts, uh, bombardment, blockade, attacking the armed forces of another state. Um, there's, uh, I think, eight of them, seven or eight different acts. Um, but we, you know, the crime itself, the definition of the law itself uh, allows for other sorts of armed attacks uh, to amount to aggression. So the question becomes, do cyber attacks uh, amount to crime of aggression? What about some little pinprick drone strike uh, occurring in Pakistan without authorization of the Pakistanis. So an illegal use of force in Pakistan may be following, falling below a de minimis threshold. Does that amount to an act of aggression? So these are the things that need to be worked out and quickly because imagine if um, the right of self-defense would kick in on the part of Pakistan after a single drone strike just across the border with Afghanistan. Imagine if Pakistan could r respond defensively against the United States in that case. It could right. open the floodgates. So there's a debate about what is going to amount to aggression. Cyber attacks affecting an election. Is that an armed attack under international law these days? Right. 
Um, uh, so there's going to be a group of expert advisors convening for the next number of months. First meeting is the 30th of October uh, um, uh, in New York City, um, where these world experts are going to try to figure out uh, the scope of um, uh, um, acts of aggression and what can be prosecuted. And this will then become law once they've decided? It's going to become um, kind of uh, a proposal to states that states are going to get involved in these discussions and then hopefully it will generate a certain amount of momentum and will clarify what states already want to have clarified, which is when they can respond with armed force, for example, when they can prosecute somebody for a cyber attack causing massive damage uh, to their state. Right. Things like this. So what, I mean, after after this, it's what is the practical implementation of this? If if you, if the international community decides that there has been a crime of aggression, you literally arrest the individual somewhere and bring them to Geneva to stand trial? Well, the hope would be that um, this uh, clarification of the law will pervade every level of decision-making about cyber attacks. So when, right. when a state's trying to decide, for example, whether to send a drone or a bot to another country to cause damage in that other country, that they will have a clear line about when they know when the person making the decision can be criminally accountable. If a Canadian you know, leader orders this, criminally accountable in Canada, criminally accountable in a regional court, criminally accountable in the court of another state, Germany, Russia, Belgium, uh, criminally accountable at the International Criminal Court. And the whole system is disaggregated. So, the, you know, the question about whether leaders, whether Vladimir Putin could be held accountable for the hacking of the U.S. election, that would be good to know. Also, the United States leaders need to know whether if they respond with armed force to that, whether they themselves are committing the crime of aggression. Right. So it's a setting out of uh, clarification of uh, of the loins, of the new uh, rules of war in relation to this uh, evolution of warfare. Um, what you just said suggests that it's retroactive as well. It won't be able to go... Uh, the interpretation itself is retroactive to the point of um, when the crime of aggression became activated. Okay. So uh, when, when the crime of aggression in, in uh, 2018 became active for prosecution, these interpretations of what the meaning of the terms are can be applied to that. Right. But the crime of aggression itself cannot be applied to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. It wasn't a law at the time. So aggression wasn't a crime for individuals in 2003 when the United States invaded Iraq. Uh, uh, so it would violate the principle of legality and, and, and um, not be permissible under criminal law to do that. Right. And you start thinking, obviously, of, you know, here is the rule. How do we, how do we, what, what, what's on the fringes of that rule? How do we sort of test this? This is just international. Right. You, you can't have a crime of aggression against yourself. I'm thinking of Hong Kong right now. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the use of force by a state against the um, political independence or territorial integrity of another state. So there could be another crime, though, that a, um, for example, a cyber attack by the government of uh, China right. against um, individuals in Hong Kong, there could be a way that that would amount to an international crime. So if it caused widespread destruction to a civilian population somehow, <clears throat> then it could be a crime against humanity. 
Okay. And what if a non-state actor commits mm. aggression? I'm thinking, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg goes nuts and Facebook just is all about how much everyone should destroy Liechtenstein. Mm. Um, is, is, he's not the state. He's not under orders from anyone. He's an independent actor running a private company. But is that something that's also kind of notionally a crime of aggression? So this was debated in the negotiations after the ninth around, you know, 2003 on about whether bin Laden could be held accountable for right. the attack uh, on the World Trade Center in the United States. Um, uh, and the states decided uh, that probably not. Uh, they decided that they were going to tailor the crime to be as close as could be to customary international law and the use of force. So the, only the political or military leaders or economic leaders of a state with control of the policy of that state could be held accountable. So this is, imagine for a moment that the leader is using the state as a weapon. So the leader is pulling the trigger of the state and launching the attack. That's how the crime was designed. What I have been suggesting in these negotiations over the years that I've participated and in a number of law review articles is that perhaps incrementally the notion of a state can expand. This, the notion of the state hasn't remained stable. It's had various evolutions. And maybe one day uh, state-like entities like the Islamic State, uh, um, the leaders of those entities could be held accountable in the crime of aggression. Evolving, evolving like the common law does incrementally over time so that finally individuals could be held accountable that are not connected to an organization like that for committing acts of aggression against another state. Right. And I mean, clearly, you've written the book on the subject, uh, which is available now. But I mean, that's what that was written at a fixed moment in time. If people want to sort of keep up with this issue, where, where would they turn to? How would you sort of stay abreast of what's happening here? Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a number of discussions going on, especially on a few websites that I really like. Uh, I, I love the contributions to just security. Uh, there's constant talk about cyber attacks uh, and the use of force. There's a great piece by uh, my colleague, um, German colleague Klaus Kress, that just came up. Uh, it's, it's one of the finest pieces in the last number of years about uh, the evolution of the prohibition on the use of force on just security. I like Lawfare. That's another site that I follow closely. Um, uh, and of course, the American Society of International Law. Um, so people are speaking about this. My book was intended to be um, a scenario, kind of futuristic scenario planning book. So the first part of the book is about the evolution of this idea. The second is about how it could evolve over time. Uh, so I'm kind of um, keen to see what other people think when it comes to what war is going to look like in the future and what law is going to look like in the future as well. Well, thanks so much, Noah. Thank you very much, Matt. Thanks to Noah Weisbord. Noah covers the fundamentals of international law in his module for Law 201-701, Introduction to Canadian Law. If you want to dive right into international law in depth, you can also take Law 207-707, International Law, created and taught by Queen's PhD, Chris Waters. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, who is also a staff member here at Queen's Law. You can find out more about our music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. 
Original illustrations for this podcast are by Valerie Desrochers. You can find her work at vdesrochers.com. Thanks for listening.